You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. My name is Jim Kaplan. I'm a lawyer and historical writer. Hi, this is Joyce Stah, manager of WMHT's radio reading service called Rise. My name is Katie Turner-Getty, and I am an independent researcher and writer and a frequent contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution. And I'm Bob Cudmore, and this is the Historian's Podcast. We're doing a highlights episode once again with excerpts from podcasts that appeared in 2021, including one in which I was the person interviewing and interviewed. I thought it would be interesting to run some of my columns, which are read in the Daily Gazette and the Amsterdam Recorder, about Mohawk Valley history. When we recorded that particular episode, it was the height of the summer season, where the horses were running at Saratoga Springs, the spa. I'd already heard stories that Amsterdam had its own racetrack, I mean, not the racetrack that the horse-owning Sanford family owned, but their own little racetrack where it was in the the city itself and they'd have uh, some horse racing through the years. I found out that they indeed had a racetrack in Amsterdam on the south side of the city. Horse racing in Amsterdam. Amsterdam is connected to the big track, if you will, the horse racing that takes place in Saratoga Springs. But did you know there was a racetrack in Amsterdam? I didn't know, or I'd heard rumors to that effect, but then was able to come up with uh, some material that indicated, yes, they did have a racetrack. And here's that particular focus on history column. In the 1890s and early 1900s, There was horse racing and other contests during the summer meet of the Amsterdam Fair and Driving Association. The association had a half-mile oval racetrack and extensive grounds at McClary Park on the south side of the city. Uh, There is no McClary Park anymore, but uh, there are some remnants of it. The Johnstown Daily Republican newspaper in 1896 reported the opening of the Amsterdam racing season that year took place on Saturday, May 30th in the afternoon when purses amounting to $425 were awarded. The afternoon began with three trotting races. First race purse was $150. Second race, $100. Third race, $76. And the fourth race didn't have horses in it. It was a men's running race with a $75 purse. This was followed by something called a peg race for a $10 purse. Still haven't figured out what a peg race is. And the last event was a one-mile bicycle race for the championship of Montgomery County. In the 1930s, the neighborhood off Racecourse Street, yes, there's a Racecourse Street on the south side of Amsterdam, and the neighborhood off Racecourse Street and Grimm Avenue in the 1930s, where McClary Park and this uh, horse racing oval used to be, became known as Califano Heights. 
1929, a new athletic field had been built there, but apparently not a racetrack. The Recorder in 1939, the Recorder, the newspaper in Amsterdam, ran a vintage picture, photograph, taken just outside the old racetrack in the 1890s. Modern architecture was not employed in the construction of the small wooden shanty, wrote the recorder, which was the first ticket office of the Amsterdam Fair and Driving Association at McClary Park. The picture showed a man in the ticket shed with a soapbox for a seat. An improvised slot in a piece of wood was used to pass in admittance money. The ticket seller was identified as Charles Gardner, prominent in the Republican Party. He was a former Sixth Ward supervisor. People called him Colonel. Standing outside the ticket booth was John Carmichael, also a well-known resident of Amsterdam. The recorder said he took a keen interest in sports. A third man in the picture was Peter Baird, a liveryman and contractor, all three had connections to the Fair Association. And this was a, an interesting picture, sort of rough, if you will. Uh, th- these guys were sort of dressed, but it looked just a little sloppy. Uh, maybe not like the uh, clubhouse at the real racetrack up in Saratoga. Next on this Highlights episode, we turn to a story told by our New York City correspondent, Jim Kaplan. 2021, the 20th anniversary of the attack on America, including the attack on the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. Jim Kaplan told us about a man who was a hero that day and may not be remembered as well as you might think. His name, Richard Rascorla, a native of England. He served in the British Army. He also served in the American Army and became an American citizen fighting in Vietnam. Then he came to America and had a career in security. At the time of the attack uh, on September 11th, he was vice president for security at the stock brokerage firm Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley employed thousands of people at the World Trade Center, and Jim Kaplan tells us that Richard Rascorla saved most of those people uh, through his uh, diligence as the director of security. Jim Kaplan tells us what it was like on September 11th for Rich Rascorla. Well, little did Rascorla know On the sunny morning of September 11th, sometime before his planned retirement, he would die one of New York City's and the nation's greatest heroes, credited with saving the lives of more than 2,700 of his co-workers, but never again seeing his beloved wife, Susan. The September 11th terrorist attack on the World Trade Center has frequently been compared to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor as the most deadly attack on American soil. There is a fundamental difference, however. The surprise attack at Pearl Harbor targeted a military facility and American soldiers. The September 11 attack was aimed at civilian office workers who presumably had no military training and were merely doing their regular civilian jobs. Mm -hmm. In certain respects, in my view, the September 11 attack was thus more similar 
for the air attacks in World War II by the Germans on the civilian populations of London, the response to which Winston Churchill called Britain's, Britain's finest hour. What happened after the first plane hit one of the World Trade Center towers? When word of the plane hitting the first tower, Rescorla, to some extent contrary to the instructions of the Port Authority employees, immediately ordered that all Morgan Stanley employees evacuate the building in accordance with the instructions of the many drills he had insisted upon. Reportedly carrying a bullhorn and singing the Celtic folk songs he had been taught as a youth, he led groups to the appointed well-lighted stairwells. He reportedly told employees on the way down that now was a day to say they were proud to be an American and the whole world would be watching them when they got down. Ultimately, more than 2,700 employees reached safety before the tower toppled an hour later. When Rescorla and his deputy, Wesley Mercer, were told that there might be a few people left, at least one of whom was a banker who refused to evacuate over the objection of management, they insisted on returning with New York City firemen to get them. This was undoubtedly part of his Vietnam training of leaving no soldier behind. The tower thus collapsed, and Rescorla was never seen again. For Morgan Stanley, who have lost only 10 people out of more than 2,700, was an amazing miracle. Was Rick Rescorla's bravery recognized at the time in the aftermath of the tragedy? Some days later, Rescorla's performance was hailed by Morgan Stanley President Philip Purcell as saving much of the company. There were many heroes in New York City that day, such as the more than 400 policemen and firemen who died trying to rescue people on other floors and other parts of the Trade Center. In many respects, an attack of this nature on this scale on a civilian population was unprecedented, and it was unclear how people would react when faced with this great danger. New Yorkers in the past used to have a reputation in other parts of the country for being arrogant, rude, and selfish and perhaps cowardly. However, many of the people who lived in New York in 2001 were immigrants like Rick Riscola or people who had come to live in the city from elsewhere in the country. In fact, it's estimated that perhaps less than half of the people living in New York in 2001 were born there. There were numerous stories of grace and courage and self-sacrifice throughout that day that impressed people throughout the country, in the city, and throughout the world. It was because of men like Rick Rescorla, arguably doing their job, that the reputation of the people of Lower Manhattan for courage under fire was greatly enhanced. That's Jim Kaplan with the story of Rich Rescorla on September 11, 2001 at the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. How do you listen to the Historian's Podcast? Do you find us online? Did you know that our podcasts are carried on a special radio service which is operated by WMHT, a major public television and radio facility in the Capital District? Joyce Starr is the manager of that radio service. It's called RISE, WMHT's radio information service for the blind and print disabled. RISE is WMHT's 24-hour 
Radio Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled in New York's Capital Region and the Hudson Valley. The Historian's Podcast, by the way, is heard each week on RISE, and we're talking with Joyce Starr, who was the RISE manager. How long has RISE been in operation at the WMHT? We have been in operation, believe it or not, since 1978. We are the oldest radio reading service in New York State, by the way. Really? Long time. A long time. Well, how does it how does it work? It, it's radio, but it's a little different. It absolutely is. So we like to say that it's a radio station that has all of the components that radio needs: promotion and on-air talent and shows and programming, but we broadcast differently. In fact, we don't broadcast at all. We narrowcast. So as a service of WMHT Public Media, our audio is heard for those who wear blind or print disabled over a specially tuned radio that WMHT loans absolutely free of charge to qualified listeners. And now we stream our signal as well. So yeah, 24 hours a day, Folks who can't maybe pick up a newspaper for one reason or another or a magazine or a book um, can hear our volunteers read to them. Not to get too technical, but it's the programming is carried on what they call the subcarrier of signals of the uh, WMHT FM stations. Exactly, exactly. And if someone were to listen very carefully, they might hear a little classical music from 89.1 in the background. Because imagine that our signal rides piggyback. So we're very close to 89.1 in frequency, but not. <laughs> so our, our signal is close, but not quite, so that we can ride piggyback. So, for instance, if 89.1 were not on air, we would not be on air. So we ride piggyback. Okay. Kind of like surfing a wave behind 89.1, our classical station on WMHT. So that's how we're narrowcasted. Mm-hmm. And you say that people who are blind can get receivers and there's no charge. How does that work? Well, WMHT is generous enough and believes in the mission and supports the mission, and we purchase these specially tuned radios. So you cannot listen to Rise on an ordinary radio. Uh, You listen on a loaned radio, or you can stream our signal as well. So each listener typically has a radio, um, and some people will stream online on their computer if they uh, have that capability. But it's a radio that gets just one station, and on that station, 24 hours a day, we have programming designed for our listeners. Mm-hmm. And you say you're also streaming. Is it? Um, can anyone access the streaming of uh, Rise on the Internet? Well, since we have a copyright exemption, since, of course, we read books, we don't give that link out. We keep it a closed circuit, so to speak. But any listener, any qualified listener, anyone who applies for the service, 
can then stream us. And in fact, Bob, we have people who listen, you know, from all around the United States. If they happen to, for instance, travel in the winter, they might be listening from Florida, but they want to be in touch with what's happening in their local community. That's Joyce Starr from RISE, a radio information service provided by WMHT Public Television for the blind and print disabled. The next time they're doing a fun drive, remember to make a donation to RISE. Now we continue on our Highlights episode with a guest who spoke during the summer months to the conference put on by the Fort Plain Museum about the American Revolution. Her name is Katie Turner Getty. She grew up in Boston, in fact went to uh, Bunker Hill Community College uh, to begin her college education, which ended at the prestigious uh, Wellesley College, And Katie Turner Getty is an independent historian. Her work often appears in the Journal of the American Revolution. She talks about the prison ships that England used to hold prisoners of war during those troubled times. Thousands of Americans were taken prisoner. Um, I think probably starting in earnest with the battles of New York. Um, The Americans lost New York to the British in 1776, and at that time, thousands of Americans were taken captive. But I think there was a sense of exigency in terms of where to hold these prisoners. And so, due to space constraints, I think they began to be loaded onto prison ships and held there. In some cases, those Americans would later be transferred to land jails in New York City. Some buildings during the occupation of New York were um, repurposed from structures like sugar refineries or churches were repurposed into jails to hold American prisoners. And the same thing happened with ships, with British uh, Royal Navy warships. They were kind of stripped down, hulked, and moored in the East River or the Hudson River, and prisoners would be loaded onto those ships and held there. And the conditions Mm. uh, in the jails, but also aboard the ships, were absolutely abysmal, and men died in droves. Did the British use prison ships in their other wars, or is this kind of an American Revolution development? That's a very interesting question. My understanding is that in the 17th century, there were prison ships on the Thames River in London. Um, That's the only other instance that I'm aware of uh, where they were used. But certainly in the American Revolution, they were all about the New York City area and particularly concentrated in an area called Wallabout Bay, which is in the East River right off the coast of Brooklyn. And there was such a a heavy concentration of prison ships there, including one notorious ship that I think people even today are are kind of familiar with, was the Jersey prison ship, where Mm -hmm. that um, was in service for almost the whole war, holding American men. And the men that died on the Jersey were buried on the Brooklyn shore. And... Mm. During the later construction of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, several bones, um, many hundreds, if not thousands of bones, 
were uncovered due to uh, the burial site of the men being disturbed during the construction of the Navy Yard. Well, let's, let me ask you more about the Jersey, which became a prison ship. So originally it was a British warship? Yes, exactly. And it was a very old one. I think it was originally uh, built in about the 1730s. So by the time of the Revolution, it was about 30 or 40 years old, uh, beginning to kind of uh, decompose, not in good condition. And so it was decommissioned and moored in the East River. And it was quite large. I think it might have been uh, about a 64-ton ship. And mm-hmm. so they basically removed, you know, all of the, all of the guns. They closed up all the portholes in the ship. They drilled some air holes uh, for the men. But typically what would happen is when prisoners were captured and were put on board a prison ship, they were generally kept in the hold underneath the decks uh, and locked in the hold overnight mm. uh, in very, very crowded conditions, extremes of weather, as you can imagine, uh, suffocating heat in the warm months and frigid frostbite-inducing cold in the winter months. Hi, this is Dana Cudmore of Cobaskill. I'm the author of a new book from Black Dome Press out of Catskill. The book is called Underground Empires, and it is two centuries of exploration, adventure, and enterprise in New York State's cave country. Where is cave country, Dana? Primarily, it is Schoharie County and Albany County. Uh, and in each county, there are about 150 caves. Owl Caverns is a very popular attraction still and has been since 1842. And Secret Caverns uh, is just up the road from from there. They've been open since 1929. How is it that some places get a lot of caves and some places don't? Do you cover that at all in your book or have looked into that subject? I'm uh, no geologist, but it has to do with the the earth beneath us. And uh, in uh, New York's cave country, it is a, a good solid limestone which is easily eroded by water. And if you, you follow this belt of limestone, uh, it arcs down through Pennsylvania, the Virginias, starts to turn west through Kentucky and Tennessee, and uh, goes just about all the way to the coast. And I don't want to get into a competition with other places, but it, as you say, there are a couple of commercial uh, caverns that are operated in upstate New York. How do we stack up in New York uh, in caving or our other states, you know, far and away with bigger caves and so on and so forth? Well, that, that of course, is a matter of opinion, but generally speaking, the caves uh, elsewhere are uh, much larger and uh, uh, more decorated. And I guess, again, beauty is uh, uh, in the eye of the beholder, but... Uh, uh, there are some very pretty New York caves, and how caverns is you know, top of my list. How did you get involved in caving? Working at How Caverns. I had never been in a cave until I started working there in uh, 1972. I gave four tours a day <laughs> all through my teenage years. 
I uh, I knew that there had to be more to how caverns. You know, as you as you walk through it and you see uh, potential for other places uh, in the cave to go beyond the the tourist route. And uh, well, where there's one cave, there have to be others. And uh, you know, I was introduced to uh, the other caves. You know, through through my network of friends. And you would you did this to raise the money that uh, let you go to uh, enabled you to go to college, correct? Right, right. Worked there uh, all through well, the latter part. As soon as I turned sixteen, I was working at Howe Caverns, and uh, and then even a year after I graduated, I graduated in '76 from Syracuse University, and uh, even a year after that, while I was still looking for work. Nice. Great summer job. I'm, you know, one of thousands of local kids who have, who have uh, have worked there, and I maintain that any one of us could step in the elevator and, and give a tour without thinking much about it. And you've written two previous books on uh, this topic of uh, cave country in upstate New York: uh, the remarkable How Cavern story in 1990, and Unearthing Howe's Cave, a community and a quarry from 1842 on. That book came out in 2005. What's what's new about the new book, Underground Empires? Well, the it, it covers a great deal more territory. I'm surprised, uh, first of all, how much is, has uh, changed there over the last 30 years. Underground Empires includes greatly expanded versions of those first two books. And then it picks up uh, again in 1990 and uh, whatever, whatever has happened since then. You know, looking back on it, the remarkable How Cavern story unintentionally, <laughs> but it had sort of a cliffhanger ending. The, um, the cave house, the old hotel, had been abandoned. The roof had been blown off by a tornado and uh, this beautiful historic stone building was was falling apart. The uh, house cave cement quarry uh, had closed. It left about 250 people out of work, and the uh, the future of how caverns was starting to get a little murky. The number of tourists was declining uh, steadily, but uh, all of that has changed in the last 30 years. And how has it changed? The uh, quarry reopened. It is now a uh, owned by Cobblesco Stone Products. They're not making cement, but they are uh, crushing stone, which is used for uh, road work and asphalt. Uh, the cave house has become a museum in the making. A group of volunteers have put it together. It's now the Cave House Museum of Mining and Geology. Uh, the roof is back on. Had the uh, the book launch there at the uh, end of August. That was quite successful. How Caverns has new owners, and they're trying some new things, uh, including the the much publicized uh, Naked Tour, which they have every year. <laughs> the women, the Naked Cave Tour. Naked have you gone on? Tour. Have you gone on that? I have not gone on that, no, and I think a lot of people would be glad to hear that. Um, but I did find a writer from Syracuse who uh, who was on the first Naked Tour, and he wrote a nice piece that uh, that I used in my book. Oh. That's 52 degrees in the cave, let me state that. <laughs> 
when you consider and start thinking about a naked tour through how happens. So it sounds that in the past 30 years, in between the, the, the books, let's say, of um, you've done before in 1990, 2005, and today, uh, Howell's Caverns, anyway, and that area has really uh, spruced up. It has, very much so, very much so. As a kid, and I mentioned this in the forward to the book, you know, I lived in Central Bridge, which is you know, about five miles by railroad track from Howell's Cave, and you know, friends and I would bike down the, the D&H Railroad and get to Howell's Cave, and it was a mess. Uh, no one would no one would dispute that you know the cement industry not necessarily a, a, a the cleanest of industries and you know the whole community was well it's covered with dust undergone a kind of a rejuvenation since then. Dana Cudmore's latest book is Underground Empires: Two Centuries of Exploration, Adventure, and Enterprise in New York's Cave Country. Believe it or not, Dana and I are not related. You can support the Historian's Podcast by giving to our GoFundMe campaign. Click the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>